seen the sin of mankind, that there's no one who does good, no one's righteous, not even one, and we are, are lost apart from the grace of God. So we see our sin in, in chapters 1 through 3, and then chapters 3 through 5, we see salvation. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and now we are working on uh, sanctification. Just how that works out, uh, works itself out. Like how, how a life of salvation, those who come to faith in Christ, how it is then that they, they live. And that's beginning with chapter 6, and today we get to chapter 7. In chapter 7, uh, really going to begin this struggle about how, how all of our struggle with sin and, and seeking to walk righteously and, and seeking to, to know, know Christ and walk in His ways and yet being burdened by our our sin as well. And we're going to look at the first six verses, and, and when we're done with the verses, we're going to um, celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning as well, so you can prepare your hearts for that. So if you haven't done so, Romans 7, I invite you to open your Bibles there. If you need a pew Bible, 943 gets you there. That's kind of right where you can stay, and we'll be, we'll be right there. The morning, uh, this morning, I have three simple points, the principle, the illustration, and the application. Principle, illustration, application is one of the most boring outlines I, I have, but it, it's really what, what the text speaks about. So maybe you can see it there as I, as I read. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. My first point comes really verse 1. It is the the principle. And and the principle of this verse is, is simply this. Dead men are free from the law. Dead men are free from the law. That's what Paul is saying here. He said, or or do you not know, brothers? This would be something just extremely obvious don't you know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? In other words, right, when you die, you no longer need to follow and obey the laws of a land because you're actually not in the land of the living anymore. And the laws are for the land of the living. So think about it. When you're dead, you don't have to stop at stop signs anymore. And when you're dead, you don't have to follow the speed limit anymore. And you don't have to go through security. Because you can't, right? It just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. And, and, and the reason is because the law only applies to, de- to people alive. And if you're dead, I mean... So if you're in a hearse and you're dead and you're speeding, the guy in the coffin's not getting the ticket, right? It's the guy driving the hearse who's getting the ticket. So if you're dead... You're free from law. And that's true of all laws. With secular laws or the law of Moses. I mean, if you're dead, if you were a Jew, you died, you didn't have to keep the Sabbath anymore. You didn't have to celebrate the Passover. You didn't have to bring your sacrifice. Because the laws are for people who are alive. Right? It, it, it is 
It is obvious. That's why Paul is saying here, do you not know, brothers, a little bit like Jesus when he says, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? You're, you're experts in the law, right? I'm speaking to those who know the law. Right? He's talking to some Jewish people there who knew the law. And he just said, this is the obvious fact that dead men are free from the law. Okay, there's the principle. Let's go to the illustration in verses 2 and 3. And, and in this, uh, these verses, he pulls from the illustration of marriage. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies... She is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So when God established marriage, it was one man with one woman for life. Jesus made that clear in the day when the the Pharisees came to test him, asking him about divorce. Is it lawful to divorce for any cause? And, And Jesus then goes back to Genesis. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let no man separate. One man, one woman, for life. What God has joined together, let no man separate. I quote that every time I perform a a wedding ceremony. What God has joined together, let no man separate. That's why, why couples agree the same thing. I take you to be my wife or husband. And I do promise and covenant for God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful wife or husband, whatever, in plenty and want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and health, as long as we both shall live. As long as we're both living. But one of the things that Paul illustrates here is that when a, a death takes place, there's a freedom from that promise. Because that promise doesn't hold anymore. Because as long as we both shall live. See, when God established marriage, it was one man, one woman, for life. It was not one man, one woman forever. In fact, while the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection tried to pin Jesus down. And they, they concocted this story about this, this woman who married a, a brother and he died, and then they married another brother, and she married all these seven men. And they said, In the resurrection, whose wife should she be? And Jesus said, In the resurrection, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, marriage is given to us for our lifetimes while we live, not in eternity. In eternity, marriage will not exist. It will be like angels in heaven. I don't think that means we won't be unaware of what took place. I think there will be some awareness. But marriage is given a gift of God during our lifetimes. That's why John Piper, when he wrote a book on marriage, he called it, who knows what he called it? He called it this momentary marriage. Right? This marriage that we have is momentary. So if you're married for 10, 15, 20, 25, 50 years in the light of eternity, it's a, it's a momentary marriage. kind of gives, gives light on this fact about how death brings an end to that marriage. And then there's freedom. And so here's the reality. The illustration of marriage is that death breaks the bond of marriage. That's exactly what verse 2 says, right? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And so that's why, why people get married. And in fact, here's a, a wedding of uh, Marcy and Keith. So Marcy, I'm not, would you call her a distant relative of ours? Very distant by 
sort of marriage. So that kind of is way too confusing for you to understand. But we know Marcy, and we don't know her real well, but we, we know her well. And uh, she was married for 46 years to Floyd. And we knew Floyd, and we knew Marcy. But Floyd died six and a half years ago. And Keith's story is similar. Keith was married to Carol for 48 years. Now, we never knew Carol. We did meet Keith, though, uh, when they were engaged. Um, But she died 18 months ago. And so I think they were longtime friends, kind of like they're in the small city of uh, Gothenburg, 3,000 people maybe, I'm not sure. How many? In Nebraska. And a small city, I think they lived there, married there, knew each other. And uh, so then they connected up again. And a month ago, they were married. Now, in God's sight, there is zero sinful or wrong about this in any way. They did totally within what God, God says because death breaks the bond of marriage. And so both marriages were broken because of the death of a spouse. And so then they married together. But if a death doesn't take place, and if a woman leaves a marriage to live with another man, or a man with a woman, right? In this case, it's a, a woman leaving. There's sin involved, and the sin is called adultery. It's basically abandonment of marriage. It's abandoning the vow as long as we both shall live. You're still living, but I am being unfaithful to the covenant. That's why verse 3 says, Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But, again, back to this, if her husband dies... She is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And, and that's, that's Paul's point, that, that death breaks the bond of marriage. And when one spouse dies, a marriage covenant is over. And remarriage is not a sin in any way. So now a quick, quick word about marriage and, and divorce here. Um, I think it would be wrong to take these two verses and just say this is what marriage can be and is forever, only waiting on the death of a spouse because Jesus, on a couple of occasions, gave reason for divorce, sexual immorality. He said that in Matthew 5, verse 32. Everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. He says the same thing in Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another, commits adultery. Now, this isn't good, okay? But, but he says if you have a spouse who has committed sexual immorality, basically they've, they've uh, dissolved the wedding bond, the one flesh bond there of marriage anyway already, and there Jesus gives permission for divorce. Now, I don't think permission is mandatory. In fact, I always seek to push people back to reconciliation. Forgiveness and restoration is far better, even in the case of sexual immorality. But if if a a wife goes, the the marriage is broken and Jesus allows for that. But adultery has already been committed, so adultery is there like when you're forsaking your, your marriage. But it's better for the husband, the wife, and the children to be back. I I just say that just to try to help. But get back to Paul's point. Paul's talking about people living and then something dying and where once you were bound, now died, and now you are not bound anymore. Now you are free. And that comes now into sanctification, right? When the the principle here is that the dead men are free from the law, right? Once they're bound for law, but if they die, they are free from that law. And an illustration, death, right, breaks this bond 
of, of marriage, and now comes the application. And the application is simply this, that you Christians, I mean, this is assuming he's writing to the Romans, he's writing to people who have embraced Jesus, who've come and believed and trust in Jesus. You Romans, believers, you're dead to the law. So it's like you were married to the law before, and then, and then you die to that law. So you're dead, so you're not bound to that anymore. And kind of trying to pull all these things together is what Paul is saying. But he's trying to get back at this idea of, of sanctification. He writes, verse 4, Likewise, likewise, my brothers. And likewise, Paul, just as his marriage is like this, and just the principle of death to the law is like this. This is very similar in our walk of sanctification. He says, Likewise, my brothers. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And there's point. There's Paul's point. And there is the title of my message this morning. You are dead to the law. Christians, you are dead to the law. The law has no dominion over you any longer. You are free from the law. That's what Paul is saying. Now to understand Paul's point, you need to go back because he's really arguing back from chapter 6. So turn back to chapter 6 and, and look there in verse 14. So he's going on. He's, he's saying verse 14 is this. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Sin shall have no dominion over you because you're not under law or sorry, our terminology, right? The, you're dead to the law. You're not under this law but you're under grace. And then the question comes up. Okay, so what's the relationship between grace and the law? And he says there in verse 16, uh, verse 15 rather, chapter 6, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Right? See, if we're, we're, dead, we're not under law anymore, but now we're under grace, shall we, shall we sin? And Paul says, by no means. And he continues with, with chapter 6, explaining how believers in Christ aren't slaves of sin, but are slaves of God. They're, they're slaves of righteousness. In fact, just, just look here in verses 16 and following, how, how this terminology about being slaves of God or, 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 or being slaves of righteousness comes up. And the idea is once you are slaves of sin in the law, but now you've transferred to be a, a slave of God. Do you not know, he says in verse 16, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. You're going to present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, either of sin or to God. And he says, assuming they're Christians, thanks be to God, or he's, he's giving the judgment of charity, or he's writing to professing Christians, thanks be to God that you, once were slaves of sin, have now become slaves of righteousness because you've been set free from sin. That's what it means to be under grace. To be under grace means that you're a slave of righteousness now, that you're a slave of a, of a new way of living. Our, our allegiance has been transformed. No longer do we serve master sin we serve master righteousness or master God. And Paul knows this slavery illustration about being a slave to sin being about, and then being a slave to righteousness is difficult. He, he, he admits that in verse 19, just I think because it connotates uh, uh, bondage and hardship and cruelty. Look what verse 19 says. He says, I'm speaking in human terms, that is of the slavery thing, because of your natural limitations. 
Meaning that this is just a, an illustration, it, it, it breaks down, but this is where it is. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. See, the one under grace seeks righteousness, which leads to sanctification, which ultimate end is eternal life, verse 22. And that's, what, that's a sequence of what Paul is explaining here in verse 20 and following. It says, when you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness, right? You're so bound in your sin that, that righteousness didn't even pass by your mind so much. He said, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, 22, that you have been set free from sin, you become slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And, and, and really the summary of it all is the wage of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the great realities of the Bible. The great realities of Christ. Is that, is that the wages, what, what we expect, what we get from our sin is death. And we don't get anything good or helpful or profitable from that. But God gives us a gift and it's eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, which is salvation. Which does impact where our allegiance lies. And it does impact then our life of how we live and it ultimately impacts our salvation. And so that's what Paul says here in verse 4. He says, you are dead to the law. Now, that dying brings a purpose. If, if you look there, we only looked at half the verse. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. See, it's, it's connected with Jesus. It's not you, just, you haven't just died by, through the law just apart from yourself. It's you've died to the law through the body of Jesus, right? Through the death of Jesus and through the resurrection of Jesus, right? So you may belong to another, right? To him who has been raised from the dead. It's his, it's his death. It's his body on the cross. It's his raising from the dead. It's your union with Jesus. So you've been crucified with him. You've been raised with him. And you've died to the law through that, so that, look at the purpose clause in verse 4, you may be joined to another, you may belong to another. And, and he's getting back here to the marriage metaphor of verses 2 and 3. Your, your previous marriage, if you will, your, your previous joining allegiance to the law has ended because something died. You died. That law still alive, but you, you died. And that's maybe where the... the um, uh, whatever, the analogy breaks down a little bit because it says you died to the law, but you're still alive and, and, and how that all works. But because you died to the law, you're a dead man. And because you're a dead man, you are free from the law. And, and being free from the law, you are free now to remarry. And your marriage now is to Jesus. You, you belong to him is what it says. And belonging to Jesus means that you will bear fruit for God is what the end of verse 4 says. So back in chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? No, because the purpose of our marriage to Jesus is to bring forth fruit for God. It's the end there of, of verse 4. Now, in this day of same-sex marriage, uh, you might be thinking all, all wrong things about being married to Jesus. But, but the Bible speaks about the church is the bride of Christ. So, so Christ is our husband, but we all collectively are the bride. So all of a sudden you see there that it's not, it's not quite a, a, a parallel. We, we all there uh, will be married to Jesus, 
But in some sense here, we are joined to him. I'm just kind of pulling the metaphor of marriage over. So it's not quite like a marriage we know. And this marriage to Jesus, is, it's like a matter. That's what it talks about being joined to him. Likewise, brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. It's a metaphor for union with Jesus. Like he said in chapter 6 and verse 5 where it says, we've been united with Jesus. It means a, a close, intimate connection somehow with Jesus. Almost like a marriage becoming one flesh. It, that, that our purposes are aligned with his. That we, we walk in righteousness the way he walks, not in sin. And, and we bear fruit for God. Actually, that's answering the question of chapter 6, verse 14, right? Is to sin will have no dominion over you. You're not under law, but under grace. Are we to sin? No, because you're united with Jesus and you walk in ways with him. And then the contrast comes in verse 5 about where we used to be. Verse 4 is, is what happened, but now he's looking back. And, and all of us who are believers in Jesus, we should be able to look back on our former life and what our, our former life was like as opposed to what our, our life is now. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, that is right, when we were serving the, the law, right, when we're, we're serving um, our sinful passions, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. See, see belonging to Jesus means that you will bear fruit for God. And, and belonging to the flesh or living in the flesh means that you will bear fruit for death. And, and, and we've all been there. Before we come to Christ, that's, that's where we were. There are times we're living in the flesh or sinful passions, the fruit of our life, it just leads to death. Well, I, I encountered someone this week who is, I, I believe, living in the flesh. I was uh, out flying my drone on Friday. Isn't that pretty? That is, that is my, my drone. Here's, here's the deal, right? I was listening to a, a podcast that talked about caring for your drone batteries. And uh, they talked about Friday Fly Day. And uh, just the idea of that is but fly it every week. And so my batteries, I haven't exercised my batteries, and it would have been about 10 days since I, I'd flown, and so I thought, you know what, I should get out. So after my day's work was done, it was kind of towards evening, I, I went out with my drone, and, and flying, there's a cornfield uh, near my house. Our house is like over here, and just kind of flying. And, and this is kind of higher, but I, I was flying lower. But if you look closely, you can see this woman, this lady, walking your dog, maybe you can't see your dog yet, but she's approaching me. <laughs> Aren't I beautiful? <laughs> I'm just kind of, a, kind of a smudge in a, in a blip. But, but she was out there, and she was walking her dog, and uh, she said, is, is that a drone? <laughs> like, yeah. She said, well, like when she was way down here, she saw it kind of flying by, and she was kind of curious about that. And so trying to do my civil duty about, you know, whatever, reducing the the fears of people about drones and their spying and things. Here, here, come here, let me show you. And so it's kind of neat. And so, I, so, I, so she's come and she said, oh, that's the expensive kind of drone, huh? And I said, no, it's about $400, uh, less than the cost of your phone. And she said, not my phone. She's got a flip phone, and so it was, it was okay. But we're just kind of, you know, make, making some conversations here. And um, so as we stood there, I, I did a flyover. I was right there, and I kind of took, took it out and kind of flew kind of right past us. And I tried to get her to look at the screen because it's really cool to see yourself on the screen when this thing's flying by, and it's really, really kind of fun. But she was more interested in the drone, as you can see. Like she's, she's looking smack dab at the drone, and I'm, I'm flying. I'm really careful, so I'm down kind of watching where everything is. She was impressed, but not too much. Uh, she kind of seemed to be in a hurry. She's walking her dog. But as she, she's leaving, here's the comment she made. She said, I, I like your license plate. 
Theo. That's the name of my dog. And I said, oh, like Theo Epstein? Yep, you got it. And I said, well, let me tell you about the meaning of my license plate. It's Greek, theou, of God. It says, I'm of God, I'm a follower of Jesus. To that she quickly retorted, well, my dog is definitely Epstein. Epstein, it's not of God. And then she kind of went off. Like, like, I didn't want to have any idea about what that is. And so she, she just walked away. And I kind of snapped her picture because I thought that would be kind of <laughs> a cool illustration just to tell you. Just, just taking right, what I could do and um, just kind of using that. And, and, and God just provided that opportunity. I don't know anything about this woman except what do I know? I know she owns a flip phone. I know she got a dog named Theo, and from her reaction from talking about Theo, I, I, I discern she's not interested in the things of God. I mean, not, not even a little bit. Um, she's, I think, verse 5, she is living in the flesh. She is bearing fruit for death. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by law were working our members to bear fruit for death. I mean, I mentioned that to try to see if she was interested in, in God, maybe church or anything like that. And she was just not. Now, she was nice and polite. I'd be glad to meet her sometime. And, and maybe next time I'm out doing some drone evangelism, maybe I will, um, will do that. It's, it's, it's interesting. I'm just even thinking here about, you know, as I fly the drone, it's a, a tremendous attention getter. And then you start talking to people and show them and who knows, might have more opportunities like it did with my buddy. Um, up in the redneck woods of California a couple weeks ago. But our lives, verse 6, are different. It says in verse 6 that now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're released from the law. That's another way to say that, right? We've died to the law. The law was holding us captive, right? But believers in Christ now are, are no longer captivated by the law. That, that we have a new experience, there's a, there's a new freedom, there's a, a new way of life, the way we live. See, when you, when you come to Christ, it's not bound by rules and regulations. It's not like you come from bounding to the law to now you get bound by something else. No, there's a freedom there. It's a, not a written code. It's the new way of the Spirit. Look again there, verse 6. You're released from the law. You've died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit. In other words, right, it's the Spirit that empowers us to do what is right. The Spirit fills us with love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, and with that, we don't need a list. Okay? We don't need a list of things that we, we do. It's, it's sad sometimes when, when Christians come from the bondage of a law and, and then they see the, the glories of Christ only to be submit themselves to another law of rules and regulations. Like, no, it's not that. It's the new way of the Spirit. It's not this written code. It, it's sad when people say, yes, I believe in Jesus, just tell me what to do. Th that's not what it's about. The, what it is is the Spirit works within you and guides you and directs you in the way that you should go. And of course, there are directions in, in the New Testament about the way that we should live, but primarily, all you got to do is this. Like, like one of the questions, I, I, I did a seminar um, uh, yesterday at uh, 
Memorial Baptist Church in Verona, Wisconsin. Jeremy Scott, who used to be here in Rockford, passed that church. He said, Steve, I heard you talk about family worship before. Why don't you, can you talk to us for family worship? So I gave three talks yesterday on family worship. And, and one of the things that came up, maybe not in my talks, but I, I mentioned it a, a little bit, was one of the best things parents you can do in terms of your kids is to ask them, what's the loving thing to do? Right? There, there's some situation or some problem or some conflict that they're having. We've done this before with our kids. Right? There's, there's some problem. And you just stop them and you say, okay, what's the loving thing to do? What's the loving thing to do? And 99.9% of the time, there's crystal clarity in terms of what the loving thing to do is. That, that's how the new life of Christ is. It's, it's not in this old way of, of written codes, of this list of things to do. It's this new way of love and grace and empowerment and walking in a spirit-controlled life that works itself out by a heart motivation that then desires to do what is right and is empowered by grace to do what is right. That's exactly what Jeremiah prophesied that Jesus inaugurated. Jeremiah 31 Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. The day when I took them by the hand to bring them out from the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sins no more. So Jeremiah prophesied of this time when God would take his law and put it on the hearts of people. So, so not this written code, but this written code that's on the heart, that's a transforming the heart. When Ezekiel talks this, he talks about taking away the, the heart of stone and giving you a, a heart of flesh. That is a, a soft heart that knows the ways of God, that doesn't have to be told the ways of God, because God has told you in your heart of how it is that you are to live. And, and he calls this a, a new covenant. It's totally different. See, it's not just the rules that you're following. It's that God does a work in your heart and doing that work in your heart is the way that you live because you're bound to Jesus, you're united with Jesus, you're a slave to God, you're a slave to righteousness, and that's the way that you walk and you live. It's not external rules, it's internal desires. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 6, verse 7, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old ways of the written code because we're dead to the law, but now we walk in the newness of Spirit. Chapter 6, verse we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And there it is. Jesus brought in this life for us. And, and the moment in which he inaugurated this was at his last Passover supper that he takes. So it's a totally appropriate. This is why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. Because it was at the Lord's Supper, on that night in which he is betrayed, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to keep this supper, to eat this supper with you, because he knew he was going to transform this thing. He knew that at this moment that Israel had longed for, looked back to Moses, he's going to say, no, no, now it's going to be new. Now you're going to look back and remember me. He's going to change things. And you remember when he took the cup. He lifted it before all of them. He says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. It says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
So, in, in other words, he, he was taking all that Ezekiel promise of the new covenant. He's taking Jeremiah 31 and, and, and bringing it down. He says, you know what? Now in my blood is where that newness of life is going to come. And it comes through the sacrifice of Jesus, right? That's what the cup is representing. And, the, and the, the blood dripping down from the cross. When Jesus took our sins upon himself as the, the sacrificial lamb. And that's the new covenant. It's in the blood of Jesus. It's by faith and trust in him. As Romans 4 and 5 says, it's, it's, it's only by grace through faith that we trust in Jesus and he's the one that absolves us of our sin. And, and not only that, just absolving us from our sin, making us just before God, but also empowering us by his grace that we might walk in this new way. So we have an opportunity now even to spend some time reflecting upon that, that sacrifice for our sins. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that as you eat and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup... In an unworthy manner is guilty in the body and blood of the Lord. That's why we need to examine ourselves. And, and this is for believers in Christ. So if you're a believer in Christ, you're just new to the church, whatever, you, you're more than welcome to, to celebrate the, the supper with us. And, and perhaps you're, you're here today and there's an unrepentant sin or you, and, and you're not walking with Christ. Just you know, Maybe this is a time even to let the, let the cup and the bread pass by. So why don't you bow your head? Why don't you just examine yourself? I just encourage you to confess your sins <clears throat> to the Lord and realize that he is the one who empowers to life and examine yourself and just reflect upon just everything that, that Christ did it is likewise you also have died to the law through the body of Christ Christ is the, the portal through which the law has been put to death and Christ is the one who empowers us to walk in newness of life. And this is a, it's an opportunity just to say, please, God, help. Right Where I have failed, I, I confess those things. But I so long to walk in this newness of life. I so long to know of what it means to be united to Jesus. And as we're going to see in Romans chapter 7 some more, we're going to see just the struggle. And, and I know that struggle. Yeah, I trust you do as well of wanting to do right, but seeing the flesh pull you down. So here's an opportunity just to plead the Lord, God, for his, his grace. So, Father, I would pray as we celebrate the supper, I pray you'd help it to be a, a time of, of great joy and remembrance, remembering the, the crucifixion of, of our Lord Jesus and remembering the night before he was crucified. Some, whatever, 18 hours beforehand of, of how he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And how his body was broken for us. How he was pierced through for our transgressions. How the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What a glorious gospel, O oh God, that is. And just thank you even here in Romans that that will change us and give us desires to walk in newness of life. So God, as we sing and as we contemplate, God... Help us to see you clearly. God, we might turn our eyes upon Jesus and the, the things that are, are strangely dim will be light in his glory and grace. So we pray in Christ's name.